Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, my guest is Marty Fisher, principal of Marty Fisher Group, and we are going to talk about how to get your boards excited about fundraising. I feel like this is the holy grail of conversations. (laughs) So welcome, Marty. Thank you, Rhea. Yeah, it is. I mean, as I said to you before, this is a complete crowd pleaser conversation. Everybody wants to talk about board engagement. Everybody wants to talk about how do you get your boards interested in fundraising. So I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have a chat with you and then field some questions and get some input and ideas from other people too, because everybody's got a strategy that works. So love it. Love it. Love it. Okay. So before we jump into the details here, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that Marty Fisher Group does? Yes, absolutely. I am a consultant. I come actually from the advertising and television industry world. I'm a trained negotiator. So what does that really mean in the not-for-profit space? What that means is, as Ray and I were talking about, number one, I'm not afraid to talk about money. So there you go. That is very easy. But the core of my business is really about building relationships and building trust and opening up communication pathways so we can build consensus. So what that looks looks like in my consulting is for EDs, working with their teams, working with their boards, inter-board communication, uh, building team communication, and then, of course, helping people in general position themselves to advance their careers. So that's my business. Okay, cool. I mean, I've heard that everything in life is a negotiation, so it sounds like you're well-positioned. All right, let's just jump into it because that's what the people want. If I had a nickel for every ED who told me that their board is not fundraising, I'd be a bajillionaire right now. So talk to me about why it is you think that board members are not engaged in fundraising. I think that board members really want to help, but I also think that they don't know how. Because intrinsically, a board member is outside of their comfort zone. They don't work every day in the organization. They come in for meetings, they come in for committee work, events, but they have a primary function outside of the organization. So when you join a board, you are not in a place of comfort. And there can be some uncertainty, there can be some fear, there can be a lack of tools and no set expectations around fundraising around engagement. And fundraising, by the way, isn't just raising money. Fundraising is about building relationships at its core. So we're not always talking about money. We're just talking about talking about your organization and getting people excited about it. And I think that is a big disconnect because there's such a large price put on the raising of the money, which is critical and important, but without the relationships, the investment won't follow. I mean, Marty, you are speaking my language. I literally say every day of my life, it's not about the money. It's about the relationship. It's about the work. But I think so many of us have been the target of what I call hit it and quit it fundraising that we automatically think that, oh, you want me to introduce my friends so you can hit them up for money straight away and then it will look badly on me in some way. I couldn't agree more. And I really think that organizations that put metrics and have a lot of pride 
around the number of people they engage and the number of people that they get excited about the organization, in addition to how much money they raise, those metrics should always be parallel and running side by side. So we can really celebrate every single relationship that we build in support of this not-for-profit. Okay, you and I, before this call, we're chatting a little bit. Let's talk about the F word. Fear. I think so much of why board members are not engaged in fundraising is the fear, fear of rejection, fear of money, fear of talking about money. Do you agree that this is the thing holding us back? I think it's an enormous thing that's holding people back. It's very difficult to ask someone for money. Walk up to somebody on the street, can I have $10? The answer is going to be no. But the fact is, if we're building a relationship, if we're getting people excited about the work that we're doing and the impact that we're making and the people that we're serving and the lives that we're changing, we're not really talking about money anymore. We're talking about change. And so that fear starts to dissipate. And if you think for yourself how you feel when you ask someone for a gift on behalf of your organization, words typically come up like nervous, sometimes proud, sometimes afraid, sometimes anxious. But then when you ask the other question, the 180 degree question, how do you feel when you give to something? I feel wonderful. I feel part of something bigger than myself. I feel proud. I feel excited. So you can't have the feeling that you get when you give unless somebody asks you for something. And I think it's a really powerful two sides of this coin. And that is one of the things that can really help to dissipate fear. You had mentioned before the no, I'm afraid of rejection. Well, in fact, no is a whole nother avenue for having a conversation because no basically breaks down into three component parts. It's not for this, not now, or not ever. Now, if you've done your job to get people excited about your organization, you're probably never going to hear not ever, but you might hear not for this or not now. Those are opportunities for you to start a whole nother conversation about expectations, about timing, about shifting priorities, and it only helps to deepen the relationship. So looking at no and looking at what could be considered a rejection as just another way to engage with the person with whom you're speaking is a very powerful tool, and it does really help to take away some of that fear. You are so right, and actually I was thinking about this the other day, that really successful fundraising is just a math problem, right? It's number of asks minus number of no's equals number of yeses. So the more you're actually engaging with people and asking for money, guess what? The more you're actually raising. I mean, I know, it's crazy, right? But I think there's one thing we didn't talk about, and I really want to talk about this because this is that crazy gray area of maybe. Mm, yeah, and let's talk about maybe. Let's talk about maybe. Maybe is, I think, really at the underlying root cause of uncertainty around asking for money. Well, I just retired. I really can't give you any more money. Or I've got three kids in college. I can't possibly give now. Or I have to speak with my partner. Or I have to speak with my financial advisor. There are a list of about 10 to 15 really core maybes. And I think overcoming 
objections, overcoming this maybe space and working together as a board, working together with the staff and the board to just talk through what it sounds like to overcome a maybe really does a tremendous amount to break down barriers between the board members and their uncertainty or fear of asking for a gift. So what does that look like as far as overcoming objections? Like, is it about brainstorming with boards, responses to potential maybe statements? Can you give us some tactical tools here? Absolutely. My feeling is that at every board meeting, there should be a fundraising activity. And it doesn't have to be a long fundraising activity. But it's very difficult to ask somebody to do something that they've never done before and not let them have the opportunity to practice that. So I think we as staff have to make space to make fundraising a priority and to practice it every single time we're together, whether it's virtually or in person. And that could be as easy as tell me a story. What's your favorite story about this organization? Because stories build engagement. Stories build connection. Stories build emotional response. So you can bond, and it's a great bonding exercise for your board members as well. But also one of the things that is a really easy exercise to do is pick one potential objection that you might get to making an ask and brainstorm responses about that and maybe write out some talking points. So if you hear this, you won't be hearing it for the first time. You'll have some context and some understanding. It is an exercise that truly can take five minutes. But if you think about really the top 10 objections that you're likely to get, that is not even a half hour's time that you've spent over whatever interactions you're having with your board and with your staff And you can work to overcome this. And that's just one fewer barrier that you have to cross in order to make a gift. So let me ask you this, because one objection that I often got, maybe obstacle, let's say that, from my board members is not that they were afraid to ask for money, but that they knew that if they asked for support for their thing, their friend would then ask them for support for their thing. And that tit for tat. And some of them literally said, I cannot afford (laughs) to go out because I can't afford to support all of my friends' things. What would you respond to that? I love it. Quid pro quo. Oh yeah. I mean, it's out there. The fact of the matter is, again, that's transactional. And There may be an expectation that if I give to your organization, you're going to give to my organization. But let's just say that you're asking a friend who is in a completely different economic category than you are, but they're a friend. Your answer very well can be, and I've had this work with board members, ask on behalf of your organization. And then if you are asked on behalf of their organization, maybe try to offer a skill or offer some time versus a financial gift. So everything has value, everything. Your time has value, your money has value, your skills have value, your introductions have value. What else can you offer that will be valuable that is not a financial gift? And that has been a very successful strategy because it levels the playing field because everyone in fact does have things to offer. Yeah. You are 
speaking my language, which is we all have resources. And I think so much of the way that people think about fundraising is not empowering because they think of themselves as being in this supplicant position on their knees. But the truth is, as a nonprofit, you have resources. And the person you're asking has resources. And so we can put them together and combine them into something bigger. But I think because we come from this scarcity mindset and this inferiority complex, we feel like it's begging for money. Would you agree with that? I would. And this whole concept of a scarcity mindset is one that is, I'm a little evangelical on this topic. Because, Me too, Marty, speak. <laughs> because, because that's our hang up in the not-for-profit space. That's our problem. It's not the problem of the people who are potential donors, of the people that we're serving. I think we need to change the way we think about our value from what we need to raise to what we do to make change. And from there, you are coming from a mindset of abundance, not a mindset of scarcity. Marty, I feel maybe you and I were separated at birth. <laughs> it's a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> but let's go back to something that you'd said earlier, which I thought was interesting, which is that board members are often not even sure what to do. So they might know that they are supposed to do stuff. They don't exactly know what to do. I have a hypothesis that most executive directors or development directors themselves are not clear about what to do and therefore have a hard time translating it into tangible actions for their boards and or carving enough space to actually help to support the board in the actions that they're requesting. And I'm wondering, would you agree with that hypothesis? I would. I think that anytime that you are undertaking a strategic endeavor, and fundraising is a strategic endeavor, you have to set the expectations and the expectations have to be very clear. It's not just, we need to raise $100,000, so go do it. That is not a strategy. And there will be very little adoption toward that. But if the response is, we have to raise $100,000, but no one of us has to raise all of that money, we're going to do this as a group. And to figure out a way that everyone can participate at a level in which they are comfortable, first of all. That way, it tells people what it is. It gives them the opportunity to talk about what they can do, and it also gives staff a matrix of what is available as resources, what is available of interest, what is available as involvement. And so this is a dovetail question to give or get right? I mean, a give or get, if you have that with your organization, I view that really as a minimum if you're going to have that kind of policy in place. It's just a threshold to start a conversation rather than a cap on what you should be able to give. So I think it really does, to, to circle back, I think it really does start with setting very clear expectations. And that work happens in advance. Therefore, it's not going to be a reactionary exercise. It's going to be a very proactive exercise. And that's when people start to feel success. And that's when people start to feel energized. 
Yeah, it's such a good point because I think we forget that people have a process by which they learn and master skills. And so by throwing new board members into the deep end and saying, go raise $100,000, that's the same as telling a couch potato to go run a marathon. It's not going to happen. But if we can meet them where they are and talk about, okay, well, here's a plan. First, we're going to ride around the block. We're going to see how that goes. And then maybe we'll, next week we'll run three miles. And then after really helping them to build some muscle and scaffold their learning, which we know we do with kids all the time. I don't know why we forget how to do that with the grownups. Well, I'll tell you why I think we forget to do this with the grownups. I think we forget to do it with the grownups because the grownups tend to come to us with titles. So I've heard this multiple times. Maybe you have too. We just brought on, this is the example, we just brought on a new board member from this financial institution. They're a managing director. I know they have means. It should be no problem for them to fundraise. I can tell you from working an entire career in the corporate sector, because you can do institutional deals and you can raise money on a corporate platform, it has very little translatability into asking individuals for their discretionary income on behalf of your organization. So I think that there is a lot of times a disconnect between what our expectations as staff is of what these board members should be able to do, but they don't have the mechanism because it is fundamentally different than what they do in their day-to-day job. It's so funny. Someone once said, stop shooting all over. We shoot all over our board. Yes, yes. (laughs) Let's talk about give and get for a second, because I have some opinions about that. But what are your thoughts about a give, get versus having language that's more a personally meaningful gift? I understand why a lot of organizations do a give and get. And it works for a lot of organizations, right? It depends on the composition and the personality of your board. If you have people on your board that are on your board and they just really are there to write a check, they need to know how much, it's very cut and dried. But the real opportunity we have now, and these conversations are just so robust, is about changing the compositions of our board and bringing in new people, bringing in different thoughts, bringing in different, lots of diversity. And that means a lot of different things. And so it's up to us to have conversations about what is comfortable, what is the priority. You may not be able to give as much as the person sitting next to you, but if that is a meaningful gift, and if that is the largest gift that you are making to a not-for-profit organization, then that is significant, regardless of the amount. And so changing that language to meaningful and significant to you and in the top three of your philanthropic donations also sends a message when you're asking someone else for a gift that this is really a priority for you. And so that you give that ask even more import when you have the opportunity to ask. So Marty, I just want to point something out and lift it up for those that are listening, which you've referenced it many times, but so much of the work is about having a conversation and a personal, meaningful conversation. The conversation is the relationship and the relationship is the unit of change. And I just feel like so often as staff members, we don't take the time to have the conversation. And so I guess I'm wondering, is that something that you're seeing in your work? 
It's something that I do all the time. And I understand everybody is stretched really thin. But because of that, it's also our responsibility to maximize the potential of every single resource we have. And sometimes that takes a little bit of pre-work. Getting to know your board members personally, understanding what their issues are, what their interests are, what their other giving preferences are, and learning a little bit about their work, learning a little bit about their life, connecting, connecting, connecting. I mean, it's many connections as you can make. This goes back to that building trust so that when you do ask them as a staff member to do something that might be initially uncomfortable, they know that they have a relationship with you and you will support them. And I think that many board members don't feel that they want to ask because they don't feel supported. And they don't feel supported because they don't have that personal connection. So that is, to me, step one in any sort of board engagement conversation. Yeah, I would add to that too. I think lack of process breeds distrust. So if I don't know what you're going to do with this introduction that I'm going to make to you, and I don't know that you're going to treat this connection of mine carefully and with intention, then I'm way less likely to want to extend my good name on behalf of the organization. Because you know, as we know, as a sector, we're terrible at stewardship, generally. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up because this is one of my favorite constructs. I'm sure you've heard it and probably people on this podcast have heard this as well, but it's called the five R's of relationship building. And the way that it looks, it's basically, if you can imagine a pie chart at the top is research and that's taking in a relationship building in terms of time, you know, about 30% of your time. And then the romance part Well, that's the fun part. That's the place where your board members can so shine because they can tell their stories and start to get people involved and interested and talk about why they got involved and why this is important and what's happening in the community in terms of change. That's the romance part. Again, about another 30%. Then there's the request. And this is the thing. This is where a lot of people feel that there is some friction. But in reality, in terms of relationship building, it's only 5% of the time you spend on the relationship is in requesting. And if you've brought somebody so far where they are involved, where they are interested, there is an expectation that they will be asked. And if they're not asked, they start to wonder, hmm, am I not good enough to be part of the change that this not-for-profit is making? So there is an expectation of a request. But then after that, and you had touched on this before, is recognition. So it's the initial recognition. That might be a phone call. It might be certainly an IRS letter. That's the initial recognition. But then the continuation of recognition. That's keeping that relationship at the same level of intensity as when you were in the romance phase. Because no one likes to give a gift and be forgotten. And how many times does that happen? Yeah, it's funny. Marty, I had a podcast guest. It's actually posting next week about dating your donors. And the analogy is once you get put a ring on it, you stop taking your significant other out to dinner and bringing flowers. <laughs> Nobody likes that. Nobody likes that. Everybody wants the flowers. Get the flowers. <laughs> get the flowers. Just because you put a ring on it does not mean the deal is done. So a few more questions that I want to ask Marty, because this is so good. 
Okay, so Marty, tell me a little bit about when you know if you have a reluctant board member, when it's time to cut bait or if that person can be coached up. It's a really interesting question. And when you think about just board members in general, when they sign on to be a board member, they really sign on to three duties. The duty of care, which is always to act in good faith. The duty of loyalty, which is to keep the best interests of the organization in mind. And the duty of obedience to the laws, to the mission, to the fiduciary responsibility. So that's what they are, in essence, signing on to do. But what's interesting in terms of how do you know when a board member needs to be replaced or can be coached, I always go back to the basics. Are they still interested in what we're doing? Are they acting interested? Are they sounding interested? Are they reposting our social media? Are they showing up to events? Are they involved with what we do? And starting with that. And I think this also comes down to, we had talked about it earlier about expectations. This also comes down to clear expectations that every year or every six months, each board member will have a conversation with the ED individually or with the board chair individually. So you can always be taking the temperature of board members. And if circumstances change in their lives, and sometimes they do, and they're not able to serve, but afraid to say something, they might just be looking for an opportunity. So oftentimes when I'm coaching a board chair or coaching an ED, I ask them to talk to their board members about the ABCs of value of board service. And the ABCs are answering these three prompts. Am I adding value? Am I being valuable? And am I creating value for this board? So am I adding value? That might be giving a financial donation or serving on a committee. Am I being valuable? Am I thinking about ways to connect new people and new potential donors to the organization? And am I creating value? Am I doing the strategic work that I need to do to be really invested in the future of this board? And if you use this as a framework, these ABCs as a framework, it helps the conversation to structure itself, number one, so you set a very clear expectation at the outset. It's consistent, number two, so you can gauge over time if these things start to shift and maybe it's time to make a change. But if there is time to make a change, I always typically ask that board member if they could be part of the transition and helping to find a replacement. So you're not left with a hole in your board. Yeah, that's so good. I mean, how many of us have been on the receiving end of sending out emails and not hearing back from board members? It's the equivalent of being ghosted. At least that's what the kids say to continue with our dating analogy. But I think at the end of the day, people just, they want to be a value. They want to be part of something greater than themselves. And they want to feel they're being recognized for that. And I think we often forget that. And I also think, just to jump around a little bit, I think one of the biggest mistakes that we make, and I certainly did, particularly at the beginning part of my career, is we have really boring board meetings where... Don't get me started. This is another hour. Yes. And that's why I think telling stories, doing a little exercise. Look, you don't need to do report outs. People can read. They can read the reports. Meetings are for making decisions and creating a bond. 
That's what a meeting is for. Yes. Report out someplace else, committee report outs someplace else. You can read all of that stuff. Just make your decisions and have a connective experience. Yes. So, Yes, 100%. I mean, I, I remember at the beginning of my career and I would essentially spend the whole meeting reading the report that I'd sent them the week before. And I was like, why am I <laughs> talking this much when I have a board room full of very smart, very accomplished people? I want to know what they think. And yet, I don't know, for whatever reason, I couldn't get out of my own way until I, I don't know what I did. I just, I started to reconfigure. This is dumb. Like, why am I talking right now? A meeting should be just that. It's a meeting. Yeah. It's meeting people. It's connecting right. with people. It's not right. reading material that you can read in advance. I know. And I think the other point, too, is that if we're not intentional about building relationships between board members, it won't happen. Because I often would forget I had relationships with each of them, but they didn't necessarily have relationships with each other. And so... Things went better when I actually made the time to build those bonds between them. And to your point, I think board culture is really important. A board has to create its own culture and it has to develop its own personality. It's an entity and it shifts and changes over time. It's organic. So things that do that are programs like putting a peer mentor system in place where you pair a more seasoned board member with a new board member. You level the playing field right at the outset. Oftentimes, a new board member will come on to a board, but and maybe they've had board members on there for 10, 15 years, and they feel like they can't really contribute because they're not sure. So doing what we can to break down the barriers that exist within the board so you can create those open pathways for conversation. Give them a game to play every single board meeting. Let them brainstorm, as we were talking about earlier, about potential objections that you might get to and ask. That has its valuable conversation and it also helps people to connect with the mission, but also connect with themselves and everybody feels like they can contribute. But one of the most important things, and that I know we're going to move to questions that I find really works incredibly well with boards, is asking board members what skill or proficiency or resource can we help you, the staff help you, to build while you're on this board? For instance, if there is a board member who would like to become better at public speaking, there are always opportunities when you're working for an organization to speak in public, to speak in front of a group. So how can we help build your skills? How can we help make you a better professional? How can we help make you a better board member? It is definitely a two-way street, and that's another place where that mentoring relationship can be very powerful. Yeah, that actually makes me think of something which is often we ask our staff members what their superpower is, but we forget to ask our board members what their superpower is. And I think that it's because oftentimes we talk about it as the board. It becomes one single entity, but that entity is made up of individuals. So 100%. superpower as superpower exercise, that's a great one to do. Yeah. Cool. All right. We're going to jump in because I know folks have some hot questions here. So Kristen, do you want to ask? 
Hi. Yes, this has been so helpful. Hi, Ria. Thank you for setting this up. And Marty, you're so great. I've been vigorously taking notes and I have a board meeting next week and I'm like ready to go back to my development director and board chair. Anyways, so thank you so, so much. Super helpful. So I really resonated with what you said, Marty, about these maybe gray area that is challenging where... And I hear this constantly, right? And we've had discussions at the board level where our other board members have said to others, board leaders, stop making assumptions for other people, first of all, right? You're making an assumption and you're putting words in that person's mouth because you're afraid of rejection or whatever it might be. And so I was curious from the staff perspective of how to work with board leaders or or for when those things come up to help coach them around, because I hear it all the time. Well, they have three kids in college. Well, they're at capacity. They're over leveraged. They hear the same thing. How as a staff member, I love the idea of putting them together and having them work through that. But sometimes I think that some of our board members, they don't even know where to start. And so as a staff member, how to coach them to work through that. I think that's a great question. And I honestly, when I hear that, and it may very well be true, they may, I'm sure they have three kids in college. I'm sure they're, but you don't really know what's going on behind closed doors. You don't really know. And I agree with you, Kristen, that it's a very easy way for people to avoid an ask because they're assuming the outcome already. So I usually just turn it on its head and say, but what if that weren't the case? Yeah. But what if? What if, what if you're assuming that and what if all these things are true, but what if you asked anyway? Yeah, that's great. What do you think is the likelihood? And if you have a corporate board, people who come from corporate world, everything is ranked and stacked on a, is this highly likely, medium likely, or a low likelihood of happening? How likely is it to hear a no? And what are you asking for? If all of those things are true, it may not be a financial ask. It may be having a cocktail party. It may be attending an event. So you can take the information you have and not turn it into an assumption, but strategically target your ask knowing that information. Thank you. You're welcome. Let me ask a follow-up question here, Marty, and then we'll jump to other folks. But I'd love for you to speak about the role of the board chair, because it sounds like underneath Kristen's question is, what happens if there's not board leadership that is willing to kind of take the bull by the horn, so to speak? I think this is a really good opportunity for the ED and the board chair to sit down so the ED and the board chair can understand and align their expectations around fundraising. That has to be done first. So yes, we all know we have to fundraise, but if the board chair is feeling uncertain or afraid to fundraise, they're not going to message that out appropriately. So I think you have to start at the top, literally, And what tools do you need? What are your friction points? Where are the pain points? Let me help you get over yours so we can then start to introduce this to our board and make this more comfortable for the board. Because the most powerful story about fundraising a board will ever hear is from a board chair who said, you know, when I became board chair, I was terrified to fundraise. But then I worked with Kristen And she really gave me the tools and she worked me through my narrative and she helped me understand how to overcome objections. And we figured out what our ass would be. And she came with me when she needed to come with me. And it's great. And you guys can do this too. It's the most powerful story that you're going to have for fundraising. 
Let me follow up that point because I think storytelling is such an important key here, which is what are the stories that we tell ourselves about our organization, about fundraising, about anything, right? And so if the story that we are constantly replaying is like, we're bad at fundraising, we don't know how to do it, we don't know any rich people, this is, it's such a drag, then yes, that will be true. How do we change the narrative so that we can have a different result? Well, I think part of the reason why you get that narrative is when you're sitting in a board meeting, and I think this has probably happened to most people in this room, sitting in a board meeting and the somebody, development director, ED, consultant, you pick it, says, okay, I want everyone to make a list of five people that they're going to ask for money. Okay. You cannot even remember your mother's name. I mean, it is like, it is the worst possible question to ask. So think about the other side of that and have people talk about their personal experience with the organization, their interaction with clients, the change that they've seen. And then when they tell their stories, who do you know that would be interested in that story? Who's interested in the story? Because before you can get anyone to invest, they have to be interested. And the way you get people interested is to create an emotional connection. And the way to do that is to tell a story. I'm so glad you said I was actually doing some research about mirror neurons. When you hear stories in your brain, you actually live that story with the person telling it, and that creates empathy, right? And so when we open the door to empathy, we open the door to possibility and partnership. You and I could talk about storytelling forever, but let's talk about the practice. The truth of the matter is a lot of people are not really great at storytelling. There are very few, I would say, natural born storytellers. But you know what people are really, really good at? Talking about themselves. Mm -hmm. So there are three ways you can think about stories if you're a board member. It's a construct. It's called the story of me, the story of us, and the story of now. So the story of me is I'm going to tell you how I got involved with this organization. It's information that they know intimately because they lived it, right? So I'm going to give you my path and maybe we can find a connection. Maybe something I say will be interesting to you. The story of us is the story of the organization. So now you're taking it from an individual into the collective of the organization, and that's the story of change. My involvement with this organization, we've been able to affect so much positive change within the organization and within the community and with the people that we serve. So now you're becoming part of a larger whole. And then you have the story of now. And the story of now is really your hook for any ask because it's the story of urgency. Why? Why now? Why do I want to talk to you now about this organization? Why do I want to get you involved and excited now? And connecting that with actual activities, if you can become involved and become a donor for this organization, these are the activities that are going to happen. We're going to get kids off our waiting list. We're going to be able to expand programs. We're going to be able to partner with other organizations and do more good. It's like the classic matching gift, right? You give a dollar, but you're really giving two. I'm now convinced we actually have been separated at birth because I (laughs) use the story of self, us, and now. And for those of you who are not familiar, Marshall Gantz is the one who put this framework together. It is magical. It is a treasure. You should all use it immediately. Okay, I'm going to jump back in because people have some questions. Maritza, this is a hot question. I'm so glad you asked. 
Hello. First of all, hi, Ria. So good to see you. And oh my God, Marty, it's been so many years. It's been a so long time. <laughs> it's been a long time. Um, so quickly, so I've been with the Department of the Aging, New York City Department of the Aging as Assistant Commissioner for Bureau of Direct Services, and now I'm the Assistant Commissioner for Public-Private and Strategic Partnerships, as well as recently been appointed Executive Director for the Aging in New York Fund. So 37 years the fund has existed, and there's a lot of work to do operationalizing it. But of course, the number one thing is the board members' relationships. So I'm about to head into one-on-ones with them. I shared a strategic roadmap to digest, but clearly using the story of me, right, and the story of us as a framework. I love that so much. But a big, big component of the five pillars to concentrate on in these 10 months is diversity. Currently, there are six board members. Two are, you know, white women, two white men, and one Asian men. And and clearly diversity, I don't need to preach to the choir. We need all these diverse voices in this really important space. So suggestions on how to approach a conversation that is not very comfortable for many folks. Well, I think, first of all, it's lovely to see you. It has been a long time. And I think it may not be a comfortable conversation, but as Americans, we have lived through enormous upheaval. This not only with the pandemic, but just in terms of elevating racial justice, elevating equity, elevating inclusion. It is a conversation we must have. And boards and board members who are aware that there needs to be synergy and alignment between the people that the organization is serving and the leadership are the ones that are going to, quite frankly, be more sustainable and more successful. And if you think about it, yeah, it may not be a comfortable conversation, but the diversity of ideas is something that everyone can get around. And we all have different ideas because we all have different life experience. And we're all going to come at problems and decision-making from a different angle. And in order for us to be successful, we have to include a diversity of ideas and that comes from a diversity of people and that comes from a diversity of culture and that comes so it cascades down but if you start with ideas and you go backward as opposed to starting with well we need this composition on the board that's a plug-in but what you're looking to do is elevate the entire organization and to do that you need different thinking and to do that you need different people So I think that is a very solid place to start, a place that everyone can get around and really start to understand. It's a huge topic and it's going to take time. But the fact is that the closer we get to being one whole as an organization and its leadership, that's when we're really going to see a lot of success. And if board members aren't buying that, foundations, government grants, They want to know the composition of your board. They want to know the composition of the ideas that are coming out of these entities. This is part of the normal that is going to continue. And it's a good thing. It's only going to make the organization stronger. And each and every board member signed on to strengthen the organization. This is part of that solution. Marty, as a follow-up question to that, how do you manage the dynamic of 
there can be sometimes a bifurcation between board members who are giving the big checks and tend to be predominantly white. And then the folks of color who have been recruited for the diversity of ideas, but generally are not giving at the same level. And I just feel like there's this unspoken tension there. And I'm wondering if you have any advice about that. Well, I think it really goes back to the fact that if we believe that fundraising is about relationship building, and if we believe that fundraising is not only a financial transaction, but it's about giving of skills, giving of experience, giving of resources, then this is where your board chair can be incredibly helpful in terms of setting those expectations. There are board members who may only want to give money. That's it. That's as much involvement as they want to have. But there may be other board members who don't have a lot of financial means, but they yet are incredibly able to talk to the constituents, get involved within the community. They might live in the community. So they have a, and this goes back to our engagement metrics, they have the opportunity to engage more people. So if we start to measure what counts, which is engagement, in addition to fundraising, you can do a lot to level that playing field. A person writing a check may not really be able to engage many people at all. Mm-hmm. And the inverse might also be true. That's a great way to think about it. Okay, I think we have time for one last question. Lissandra, do you want to ask? Hello. You guys are just amazing and a breath of fresh air. So thank you so much for hosting this. But yeah, so the other day I was chatting with my incredible board development chair and my CEO, and they were saying that some of the resistance is around people feeling like their gift isn't significant enough in the face of all the money that we have to raise. And so they're like, well, if I donate a thousand or whatever, does that really count. And so it's about packaging. How do we make people feel good about a small gift, right? And then having them understand that when you give, it makes you more powerful in your ask, right? So when you contribute, you can ask others, right? So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because I'm definitely wanting to come back to them with some solid strategies for just encouraging people to give and not hesitate because their gift isn't significant enough in their eyes. Well, I think certainly people, especially now where there's so much need and there's so much to do mm-hmm. and there's never enough money right, to go around. Right. But the fact is every gift is a meaningful gift mm-hmm. because you, of the ways that you can use it. Now, first of all, there's no organization out there that only raises money from individuals. This whole conversation Mm -hmm. has been about individual asks. We haven't talked about corporate. We haven't talked about foundations. We haven't talked about government. So I think it's, number one, really important to make people aware of what your diversified fundraising plan looks like so they don't feel that the entire burden is on them, first Mm -hmm. of all. Because if the goal is to raise $100,000, but you never talk about the other grants or avenues that you're pursuing, the perception might be that we, this board, is responsible for raising $100,000, and that may not be true. So that's number one. And number two is any gift of any size, and this is just where understanding the math of your organization of how much money affects Mm -hmm. what kind of change So if $10, let's say the ASPCA, for instance, does a great job with this, right? Mm -hmm. $10 can feed one dog Mm -hmm. for a week. 
$20, two dogs for a week. So really being able to get clarity around any gift size and what impact that gift size has. Because at the end of that gift, this is the other thing, is an individual who's going to benefit. And without that gift, that individual may have to wait longer for that needed service. And so, yeah, I just want to add that for us, the board really understands how we operate. So I have to get really authentic about that. We have to get as authentic as possible around that because what the outside audience gets, I have like $25 feeds a family of whatever, but they really need to understand that's true, guys. We need to break that down for them, you know, but yeah, thank you so much for that advice. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I, I will add to that is there is a storytelling component to me. Yeah. I've raised millions in my career, but the most meaningful gift mm-hmm. I ever got was a $10 gift from one of my mm-hmm. students. We were doing a fundraiser for uh, hurricane Katrina victims and he was helping out. We were doing a talent show fundraiser and he was passing out programs and at the end of it, he slides this little crumpled envelope over with his name on it, Moses, and inside is a $10 bill. And I was like, Moses, you don't have to give. And he's like, well, no, I saved up money from playing drums at church and the kids in New Orleans need it more than I do. And that $10 meant more to me than the millions I've raised. Yep. And see, these are exactly the kinds of stories we should be sharing with our board member. Because these are the stories that really, if you talking about, it's an intergenerational thing. Anybody can do this. And if it means that you're going to connect with someone who has a real need or you're going to just have an emotional response, then these are stories that they can use to also talk about the organization when they talk to potential donors. All right, Marty, we could talk to you for hours and hours, but we are running Mm -hmm. out of time. So where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you or potentially work with you? Thank you for that. They can find me at my website, martyfishergroup.com. And there are only two Marty Fishers in this world that I can see. One is a guy in Germany and he plays an instrument I've never heard of and me. So I don't think you're going to get us confused, but feel free to Google me, martyfishergroup.com. And you can take a look at the website, reach out. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to continue the conversation. Any questions you have, please do feel free to reach out. Awesome. Marty, this has been really, really great. Any last thoughts as we sign off? Because I think all of the things that you're saying, I mean, I hear it all the time, and yet it seems very commonsensical things. Any thoughts about the implications might be for our our sector and our field moving forward? I think the most important thing is not to forget to connect with each and every person as an individual. It's not the board and the staff. It's not us and them. It's just a group of people trying to make this world better. And so those conversations, I know we're busy. I know time is really short all the time, but just make the time to ask the question, what really is exciting you about this organization? What's turning you on about what we're doing right now? Getting people to talk about it. And that just opens up so many pathways. And it also gives you the opportunity to see where there are things that might need more clarity. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Have the conversation, you guys. All right. I'll make sure to put your website in the show notes. Marty, thank you so much. This has been 
a treat. I feel like we've learned so much. Thank you to everyone who's joined. Have a wonderful week.